0: So we turn our Bibles to Genesis chapter 32. Genesis chapter 32 is where we'll spend our time tonight. Text for the night, returning there, Genesis 32, is verse 26. It says, and he said, that is, the Lord said, let me go for the day breaketh. And he, Jacob, said, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. This chapter, chapter 32, brings to a conclusion the flight of Jacob from his greatest trouble. Now, some would say that that Esau was Jacob's greatest trouble. I mean, he did defraud his brother out of his birthright and inheritance. So he had a right to think that. Some would think it's Laban and his sons who were seeking revenge for Jacob's wealth and his prosperity and how he left on bad terms. But believe it or not, Jacob's greatest trouble was neither. Jacob's greatest trouble was himself. Jacob was all about Jacob and what was best for Jacob. Sound familiar to any of us in here? Yeah, it does if you're breathing. It's all about self. He was a man like all of us who struggle with being full of himself and his actions proved this throughout his life, until Genesis chapter 32. Jacob is a man, as Pastor mentioned this morning, it was amazing, I was thinking, man, he's got some of the things I'm talking about this tonight. Not surprised, I was already, I was preaching, I was supposed to preach another message, and I, the Lord wouldn't let me do it, and it was about the grace awakening movement, and the need for preaching about sin in the pulpits, and and about the the taking for granted grace of God. And I thought to myself, well, God was all over that this morning. No wonder he didn't want me to preach it. And then he brought this into my mind, and then pastor started talking about Jacob. I said, oh, no, we can't do that. I I can't change it again. But Jacob is a man in Scripture who we sometimes love to hate. I've always marveled at the statement, Jacob I have loved, and Esau have I hated. How is that possible when the very name of Jacob means liar, deceiver, supplanter, trespasser? And by the way, he pretty much lived up to his name. And yet God said he loved him. Now Esau, on the other hand, we could think about it like a man's man. I mean, he was a hunter. I'm sure he was a good fisherman. Probably loved to golf. I mean, the guy loved to work in the yard. He's a man's man. It's the kind of people we love. But God said, I hated him. Now think about this and about Jacob. From his very birth, he hung on to Esau's heel coming out of the womb. Some might refer to that as getting a free ride from the first day out. And that's exactly how we tend to live his life as if it was a free ride. He cheated and defrauded his brother Esau. He deceived his own father, and by the way, with mama's help. It's terrible. Which makes me think, to some degree, Jacob was a mama's boy. Now ladies, no offense to any of you for loving up on little Johnny, but whatever you do, don't allow your boy to be a mama's boy. Turn him into a man. Let him be a man. God knows we have too much effeminate men in this country today that are, are raised as a mama's boy. Now I got that off my chest, so let me move on. I find this story about Jacob and God's love and care and mercy upon him, upon him as one of the greatest pictures of the grace of God in all of Scripture. I mean, the guy was one failure after another, and yet God loved him. I'm reminded of Romans 5, verse 20, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Now, I understand there's a a line in the sand with grace, but for whatever reason, Jacob hadn't crossed that line, and where sin abounded, grace did much more abound in his life. Now, we're going to pick up in Genesis 32 and verse 22 and 23. He says, he rose up that night, Jacob did, and took his two wives, his two women servants, and his 11 sons, and passed over the forge a book. And he took them and sent them over the brook and sent over that he had. At this point, Jacob has been on the run from Esau for many years. He has not forgotten what he did to Esau. I mean, he's convinced ever since he got Esau to give up his birthright, that Esau was out for his blood. Now, at this point, this juncture, which you just read, Esau is about a day's journey from catching up to Jacob, and Jacob knows that, and Jacob is frightful and fearful of what is going to happen when Esau catches up to him. Isn't it amazing how we can formulate within our own minds every worst-case scenario when we're under pressure, which in turn, when we are in that pressure, that often turns into fear, and the fear pushes out faith, and without faith, it's impossible to please God, and that's where he is. He's literally afraid about what Esau is going to do instead of what God can do. Now, some folks literally get in the pressure cooker over something that they have no control over. That's what worries us the most is when we don't have control over something and they worry themselves sick. Instead of trusting God, they're driven by fear like Jacob. And this is where Jacob is at. Fear over faith. He's pushed faith aside and fear is taking over. Of course, we shouldn't be surprised given his track record up to this point. Now in verse 20, interesting enough... He says to his family, Behold, thy servant Jacob is behind us. For he said, I will appease him, talking about Esau, with the present that goeth before me, his family, the livestock. And afterward, I will see his face, peradventure he will accept of me. So in verse 20, he sends his family and the livestock ahead of him as a present to Esau so that Esau will calm down and hopefully won't cause any damage. Now remember, earlier in this text, if you were to read it, Jacob prayed to God, and he had a powerful prayer. And in that, he's asking God to defend him from Esau, who has it out for him. He's saying, God, I need you to do something. But right after that prayer, he turns around and he manipulates and he schemes like he always does the situation. And in this case, he sends his family ahead of him and his livestock so he can somehow manipulate Esau into thinking, well, this is a nice gift. I won't do any damage. That's what we do. We ask God for something. We beg God for something. But then we go out and take things into our own hands. We tend to control the situation. And fear sometimes will make you take things into your own hands. And brother, more often than not, we end up making a bigger mess when we do that than when we started. And too often God has to come by and he has to clean our mess up. Like he's about to do for Jacob. If only we would just trust God when we're facing our fears. A lot harder to do than than just to say it. Now, in my opinion, when I read this, it looks like Jacob has put his own family at risk over his own life. This goes back to the self. He's going to preserve himself, but in this case, he's willing to put his family. Earlier, he's like, you know, that Esau could actually do could hurt my family, but then he's willing to do what he said he wouldn't, didn't want to happen, is put his family at risk. He says, you go ahead and I'll stay behind. What? Are you kidding me? Jacob should have been out in the front leading his family and that livestock when he met Esau, like a man should, face to face. But his fear kept him from ever doing that, and he was willing to put others at risk. Now, verse 24, it tells us that Jacob was left alone. This is where the event gets real interesting. It can be said that this was the greatest change that Jacob would ever undergo, and that's saying a lot given what he's faced in the past. But in verse 24 we read, And Jacob was left alone, and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. It all begins, life-changing moment, all begins when he was left alone. That we might grab this precious truth here. It's important, folks, that we... We go to church, and that's a great place to get right with God and to help you grow. It's a great thing to get around God's people in fellowship. It'll help you immensely to grow. But when it comes to some of life's greatest changes that God's going to do, it's going to take place when you're alone with God. Just you and God, one-on-one, face-to-face. Wait a minute. If it's face-to-face, that's probably not a good thing. Well, that is a good thing. It means you're in heaven. (laughs) face-to-face, scrap that from the script. Be still and know that I am the Lord. Be still and know that I'm Lord. Life-changing events with the Lord occur when you're alone with him. Just like Jacob had to be left alone. And as we read in verse 24, that this wrestling match that begins is not just some ordinary man. Oh, no, this was the angel of the Lord, who happens to be the pre-incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ. So how do you know that? Well, verse 30, if you look at that, it tells you, I have seen God face to face. Jacob's not just wrestling with any angel. Jacob's wrestling with God himself. The Lord Jesus Christ, the same one who walked in the, ar- in the garden with Adam and Eve in the cool of the evening. This is the very one now that's about to enter into a wrestling match. I find it face- fascinating that the Lord chose to wrestle with the old man Jacob. This was not, by the way, your everyday, ordinary wrestling match that would last about five minutes, which a typical match would. This wrestling match between God and Jacob was a knockdown, rock'em, sock'em, drag'em, all-night match. It literally went on all night to the breaking of the day. Some would say WWF has nothing on these two and what took place that night. In verse 25, we read, And he saw that he prevailed not against him. He touched his hollow of his thigh, and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. You notice, and he saw that he prevailed not. This is so important. It introduces to us a great truth about the Lord. You and I may do battle with the Lord, and we do at times, and in different ways. And we can disagree with God's ways, and we do at different times. But in the end, none of us will ever prevail against the hand of the Lord at any time. We may think we're going to get something upper hand on God, but we will never get the upper hand on God. That's why the Bible says, He prevailed not. We will not win that match if we go to to battle with the Lord. And i got to believe everyone here has a testimony at some point They went to battle with the Lord and found out they lost. And the older I get, the more I begin to realize it's just easier to give in to God's will and trust Him, simply obey Him. Anything other than that is a losing proposition for us as God's children. And by the way, doing His will is much more enjoyable and satisfying. It's sweet. But it's uncomfortable. It's painful at times. It's frightening at times, but man, is it sweet when it's done to the Lord. Now, I'm going to share with you a a story that's personal in relationship to this entire truth about prevailing not. My wife and I lived in Miami from 89 to 95. Um, We loved the Lord. We were faithful servants of the Lord, and we got there, and uh, Miami just got the best of us. We were struggling with spiritual consistency. I was busy even holding home Bible studies as often as I could to encourage other believers and and try to do something for God. But work, family, and pleasure seemed to end up taking precedent over the things of God in my life. It was a slow process. It wasn't a quick process. And over time, I I sensed God calling me and my wife out of Miami. But of course, at the time that was going on, I wasn't going to listen. That's typically the case. For one, I knew I was comfortable where I was at. The last thing we want to do is become uncomfortable for God. It's not our natural state to be uncomfortable. But living out in, in the uncomfort, outside your comfort zone, is going to be where God does most of his work. But at that time, I wasn't ready to step out and move on for God. I was much like Jacob in the sense that I included God in my plans when it best suited me not God. I entered into a wrestling match with the Lord during that period of time and trust me there was no way I was going to win but man did I try. Just like Jacob. It's okay to wrestle with the Lord but remember you're not going to win when he calls you for something. So the Lord has a way of putting you in a headlock. You know he gets a hold of you and gives you one of those noogies, I mean, he'll let you know. Or he puts that arm behind your back. You know what I'm talking about. Till you, try, till you start calling uncle. My dad used to pull on the bottom of my, my arm right here when I was young. He used to grab it and just pull on it. And, man, that you'll know that hurts. Painful, but it gets you to cry uncle real quick. Yeah, I got that. I'll do it. I'll do it. Whatever you want. Now, he'd do that for fun. That wasn't being cruel to me, by the way. I want to make that clear. But it gets you to cry uncle. Now what I'm trying to tell you is, you'll know what I mean. Sometimes we're fighting with the Lord and all of a sudden there's a rash of financial or uh, uh, emotional setbacks. You know, in some cases the car breaks down, the AC is not working, the plumbing breaks. Now all these things were happening in our lives at a time when I knew God was working and I wasn't listening. And then to top all that was going on, Hurricane Andrew hit us in 1992. We had a two-month-old Ashley at the time, and it was a mess. We lost a portion of our roof at that time, and and, and so we had to have someone come in after the after you know things settled down. We had someone come in. We, we, paid, we hired them. It was ten thousand dollars for that roof. We gave them a check for five thousand as a deposit. They showed up. I was the first house on the block because they had signed many many homes. I was the first time they ripped all the tile off. They put some felt on, not a lot, and we never saw them again. That was a common problem, by the way. And by the way, they they ended up, long story short, they ended up um, taking that guy to court, and 11 years later, I got a check in the mail for $1.57. I'm not joking, either. $1.57. He went... So... That house, at the time, for the next two years after Andrew, which was late 92, so up to 94, for two years we lived in a house that probably averaged about 85 degrees. This is Miami now. 85 degrees in the day. It was absolute miserable. Now, if you know Eileen and I, you come to our house, you can hang meat in our house. I mean, we make it cold in our house. No offense to you people that have your your stats set at 78, but we got that thing set at 68 all the time. So 85 degrees, we were miserable on top of all these things that were happening. And it took almost two years before a new tile roof was installed. And by the way, with a child in the house, and when things are hot, what I've learned is babies don't like heat. A happy baby is a cool baby. When those babies get hot, they're not happy. So we had to live with that for almost two years. And after we got our tile roof, we thought, well, Things have started to prove. You know, we're getting through all the, the, the madness of the Hurricane Andrew, which took about two years to clear up, clean up. And all of a sudden, my wife says, I'm pregnant. She's pregnant. She goes, I'm pregnant. And I thought, wow. Well, God, thank praise the Lord for that. Six months goes by, and she says, something's wrong. She's out to hear. She says, something's wrong. I don't feel the baby kicking. I said, well, go get, go get checked. They come back and say, well, we hear a heartbeat, but it's faint. When we hear a heartbeat, think you're going to be just fine. Three weeks later, it goes by, so we're almost on seven months. She goes back. She says, something's wrong. I said, well, this isn't good. We go back, the baby died. We lost the baby almost up to seven months, and then we had to take the baby out. One thing after another. About six months after that, I was at wit's end, God knew it, I got to get out of here but I just didn't, I didn't have the courage to get up and go and I was coming home from a vacation with Eileen and our daughter and uh, where our house was located there was a field, the only field left in the entire neighborhood, it was a big neighborhood three, 4,000 homes. And there was this big, this field. And as I was approaching in, uh, coming into the house, there's a big sign that says, coming soon, Publix for you. And I looked at my wife, I said, that absolutely cannot happen. I am not going to have a public shopping center. in The backside of it Across from my house. I mean, you can imagine at four o'clock in the morning, they got 18 wheelers pulling up and making noise and they're unloading trucks. I said, This is a sign from God, a public sign. We're getting out of Miami. I've had enough. I threw my hands up. I said, I can't do this anymore. God, what do you want me to do? Where do you want me to go? What am I supposed to do? I don't know what I'm supposed to do, but I'm going to trust you. And Eileen, I said, Are you with me? And she said, Absolutely. That was on a Saturday. On a Monday, I, um, I called the realtor and said, We're putting our house up for sale. He came to meet us. He tells us, Hey, you guys have picked a really rough time uh, to try to sell your house. Nobody's, things aren't selling right now. And I said, Well, just put it up for the asking price and see what happens. We've been, you know, we've been praying about this now for about 24 hours. And I said, Just put it up for sale. And the guy says, Look, I, You know, I don't want you to get upset at me, but it's, you know, this could take six, eight, nine months. I said, I don't care. Put it up for sale. On Tuesday, they put the sign up. On Wednesday morning, he calls me. You're not going to believe this. You ever get the call? You're not going to believe this. Well, I'll believe it because God's involved. He said, somebody wants to buy your house, all cash offer, and they want you to move in three weeks. Are you good with that? Now, you'd imagine that call to my wife. Who just was willing to get up and go and do whatever, but then to say we got to leave this house in three weeks with no plans, nowhere to go, three weeks. I came back to her, boy, that 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 rattled her cage. But she said, "This has got to be God's will. God's got to be doing something here." Three days after that, we made the decision to sell the house. We got three weeks. A friend of mine called, who lived a few miles away, and said, "Hey." I worked with him for a couple years. He had finished building this palatial estate, beautiful home on an acre of land. He calls me, he said, I just got called to go to work for, I think it was uh, American Airlines out in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I need you to come and stay stay at my house while I'm gone for two years. Place for our furniture, place for us to live, but wait a minute, I'm still in Miami. Something's not right. God called me out of Miami, but here I am still in Miami. The next thing I'm looking at is a job. I'm looking all over the country. I worked for Sheryl Williams, as many of you know, and I was willing to leave at the time, whatever it takes. And all of a sudden, uh, an opportunity came up here in southwest Florida. And I said, um, well, I had the opportunity, but it was in middle management. I wasn't prepared for it. There were 28 other people who applied for this role. When I went to them and said, Hey, I'm interested, they said, You don't have a chance of getting that job. There are so many more people qualified, way ahead of you. And I said, it Doesn't matter. I'm putting my name in the hot hat. I was desperate. Let's go. And so, anyways, I did that. I walked in, I was the last person, the last interview, and he didn't even really care to see me. But I walked in that door and he said, In 10 minutes, he knew I was the guy for the job. He knew it. Now, to this day, I've talked to him, He's he got saved later on, he told me that was a God thing. He recognized that something happened in that moment, he didn't even want to include me in the plans, but he knew that was the guy over here. Now, so I move over here, we get in church, now I'm sitting in the back row of a church, New Testament Baptist church, I'm not moving, I'm just sitting enjoying being a pew sitter, and and, and two about two, three weeks into this, somebody preached the message, I don't even remember the message, but I remember coming under such conviction about doing something for God, do something for God, something really important with purpose, and that point on, I, I took that step of faith, before I knew it, I was teaching a Sunday school, before I was doing, I was preaching on Sunday nights, before I was doing Wednesday nights, prison ministry, before God had me busy, busier than I could ever imagine, it was the hand of God. There's no, shout, there's no doubt of what God did in our lives, and moving us along to get us involved in ministry at that time would be considered full-time, while I was working a full-time job. All this is because God has a way of prevailing in our lives, just like he did for Jacob. Remember what he said, he prevailed not. He tried, but it didn't matter. And in verse 26, for the heart of our message, and by the way, there's a part two to that, that testimony. We don't have time tonight. I'll share that with you at another time in what God's been doing. But verse 26, and he said, let me go for the day breaketh. He said, I, Jacob, will not let thee go except thou bless me. Those words are profound and life-changing. Okay, God, I give up. I give up. I surrender. I mean, really surrender. I need you. And I'm not running from you ever again. Remember, his whole life was about running. He says, I'm fully yielded to you, Lord. I'm not partially, I'm fully yielded. Like the song says, Have thine own way, Lord. We sing it all the time, Have thine own way. But I wonder really how much we mean, have thine own way. It's scary to say, God, Take me, I'm yours. I'm placing myself on the altar, the sacrifice altar. You have whatever whatever you want. Those are scary things, and why most of us fight God on that. Jacob's confession to the Lord, I will not let thee go, is a statement of faith. One, I'm going to depend on you, God. That's the very definition of faith itself, is depending on God. Because without depending on God, it's sin. It was also Jacob admitting his complete reliance and the recognition that all blessings and all power comes from God. Everything we have, everything we can do, comes from God himself. Now back to verse 25. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh. And the hollow of uh, Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. This talks about the Lord prevailing over Jacob, and now, now, not before, but at this time in his life, Jacob's no longer in control of his life, the Lord is in control of his life. He's finally submitted to his will. He's all yours to take. Now, folks, I'm, I'm not a doctor, or not even close to a doctor, but something tells me when he touched that thigh, he literally went down for the count as he touched that thigh. And what an appropriate position for Jacob to be in when he's getting right with the Lord. Down, and I mean down, brother. God's not going to work in our lives until we humble ourselves. God resists the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Now, we we, we have two choices in this life with God. We can humble ourselves, and that's really hard to do. You ever hear yourself say, Lord, I think I'm humble before you. I think I'm being humble before you. That's a statement of pride. How is it you know you're humble? Only God knows what humility is or humbleness in your life is. So it's really hard for us to say, I'm humble. The other choice is God humbles us, like He humbled Jacob. Now, if I were you, I'd pick door number one. Humble yourself before the Lord, but God's not going to work until you're humble. This picture that I constantly go through within my mind with Jacob when he says, I will not let thee go, pictures me of some young kid, you know, clinging to mom and dad on the leg for his, like his very life dependent on His mom and dad are walking, you know. You've seen that. Kids are holding on or someone walks in the room, a stranger, it scares them. They grab a hold of the leg and they're not letting go. They're hanging on for dear life. That's kind of Jacob right now. He's hanging on for dear life because he recognizes the dependency for God. And the, just like a little child recognizes the dependency and security of that parent. May we have that kind of faith. It comes obvious that this is the case when the Lord says, let me go. It's kind of like saying, hey, I got a universe to run here, Jacob. We've been doing this thing all night. Hopefully you got the point. Depend on me, Jacob. Now let go. There's a deep and valuable lesson in all this for us. Some of the simplest things in Scripture are the most profound. Many times, God has to break us before he can mold us. The potter saw the, what was on the wheel and he took the, what was on the wheel and he break, make it again another vessel. He had to break it first before he remolded it. Often the way with God, he has to break us before he can mold us. His life work is conforming us to the image of his son that we may be vessels of honor. Vessels that He full, he molds but breaks first. This breaking process that we go through, like I did in Miami, didn't happen overnight. It took, it took years, and it's not over, folks. Part two was the other piece where God was breaking me. I hope to share that with you one day. And we learn how fragile and weak we really are, but it's not till we get to the place of brokenness that we realize our utter need and dependence on Him, and not ourselves which is so often the case, have you been broken by God, O Christian? It's when we come to an end of ourselves that God begins to do his greatest work. This is the very place Jacob was brought to, an end of his will and the realization of God's will. I will not not let thee go is a cry of any born-again, blood-bought believer who's realized his need, For Christ to control his life. And I'm not meaning pieces of it. I'm meaning all of it. We cry out for God to have complete control of our life. I think Paul said it best when he said, for I am crucified with Christ. That means I'm a dead man. I don't live anymore. He says, for I am crucified for for Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the cry of a Christian who surrendered the will of God. It's saying, God, I'm not letting you go. No job, no family, no pleasures, no sports, no amount of money, no retirement, no success, no power, no materials, no education, no hobby. Anything is ever going to get in the way of me seeking you first. And everything I do, may help God help us to have that conviction and that desire. In verse 28, he said, Thy name shall be called no more. And he reminds him what his name is. Liar. Deceiver, supplanter, trespasser, running from God, doing his own thing, scheming all the time, manipulating, saying to God one thing and doing another. That's the Jacob we know. But he says, your name's going to be no more Jacob, but Israel. He says, what's that mean? For as a prince hast thou power with God and with men and hast prevailed. Woo! Submit to God and you prevail. You win. Whenever you decide to submit to God's will, you're going to win in life. One reason why we're losing all the time is because we're not willing to submit to God. Until we get to that place where go, God is yours. I know some people say, Brother Todd, I don't feel like I'm winning. Feelings have nothing to do with this. This is about Trusting God no matter what. You say, well, I don't, I've don't seen years I haven't seen God rewarding me. You will when you get to heaven. Don't worry about it. That's a faith. That's a real faith. A A simple childlike faith goes a long way with God. So in conclusion, Jacob decided to finally put God in full, and I mean full, control of his life. Kind of reminds me of what may be considered, I think, one of the greatest joys of being a parent. And raising children. It's literally when they're young, it's their complete and total dependency on us as parents. We love that. You know, they, they want us. They need us. They want to, as I saw earlier, just Glenda, your granddaughter, just clinging to you, or clinging, uh, brother Jim, clinging to you as dear life when I walked up, probably because scared to death of me. I would too. I'm up there trying to be nice and sweet. She's like, whoa. But she's holding on to him for dear life. And you were loving it. You were just loving it. When they're young, they're utterly dependent on us. But then they grow up, especially around those teenage years, and they kick, scream, and fight for their independence. And when they're young, they're all daddy, daddy, mommy, mommy, clinging to you as if they're very life dependent on And then the next day, they grow up to be Monsters. Some of them are young adults, but many of them are monsters, and they start acting as if they, you don't even exist in your own home. They speak to you in monotone wo- and one-word syllables. How's it going today, kid? Okay. Hey, everything good? Yeah. Hey, you want to tell me about your day? Nope. That's the pro- productive conversations you tend to have with teenagers as they fight for their independence. Now that's a natural thing and God wants that, but it's not natural with God. We shouldn't want our independence. I'm afraid sometimes we treat our Lord the same way. We don't mean it. We don't it's not we want to ignore him, but because we're too focused on taking care of ourselves, we're looking for our own independence. We just it's natural. May God help us to get to the place like these little like little children realize also like Jacob our utter dependence on Jesus Christ for everything. And may we cry out to God tonight, I will not let thee go. May that be our prayer tonight as we go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, which gives us such simple truth but profound and deep, sometimes really hard to understand and grasp because it, it impacts our lives and what we are required to do. But may God, you help us in this hour with this these truths fresh on our mind, Lord, to make a decision for you. And we're just going to submit our will and humble ourselves before you and be like Jacob and cry out, I will not let thee go. May God, you help us to depend on you for everything we do in life. As we ask this in Christ's name, amen.